Hi, this is Dr. Camille Kandekohausen from Imperial College London, and you're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the University of Liverpool's Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, myself, Alex Owen, academic developer, and Matt Davis, organisational developer, sat down with Dr. Camille Kandekohausen. Associate Professor of Education at Imperial College, who was the keynote speaker at the University of Liverpool's Pedagogic Research Conference back in January 2020, when she spoke about engaging students. As part of this special for the University's Learning and Teaching Conference, we explore issues related to one of the key themes for the conference, students as partners. We hope you enjoy. Camille, it's wonderful to have you here with us today. It's been lovely having you as part of our pedagogic research conference here at the university. Um, And you've just done your keynote speech, which was fantastic and has been really well received and lots of great questions at the end. Um, I'm sure you'll agree. So it's lovely now for us just to find a quiet room and have a chat with you um, to unpick some of your thinking, particularly around student engagement. But before we get into that, it would be great to just hear a little bit about your professional background and how you've arrived at Imperial College, where you're now based. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So I started doing higher education work in the US, did my PhD working with George Koo on the National Mm -hmm. Survey of Student Engagement, which was really part about uh, changing the culture around discussions about quality in higher education, about trying to give data to institutions to move beyond what was in the league tables. Uh, and being pushed in the US, and it's hugely taken off. Uh, It's still running in the US today, has been expanded uh, to a number of countries around the world, and it's about providing institutions with data about their students uh, to improve the student experience. I think that's really important. So I worked on that, then came to the UK uh, to continue some work on students and what was supposed to be a short-term postdoc. It has led to a number of different academic roles within uh, I was previously at King's College London, and then I moved uh, last year to Imperial College, where there's a new Centre for Higher Education Research, uh, and carrying on doing a lot of research on students and the experience and the relationship with the curriculum at Imperial. Wonderful. Associate Professor, so congratulations Thank that. you. That's yeah. great. So have you seen a difference between um, the student body in the United States and then over in the UK? Is, is the difference in terms of their expectations, or is a student a student? Uh, actually, I did some research in the UK on the student experience and a lot of students, their feedback on the change in their expectations and then what they subsequent, subsequently experienced was that they thought it was going to be like an American film. Oh, interesting. Which I think is part of a wider idea that in the US, a lot, of, a lot more students know what it is to go to higher education. It's kind of a bigger part of popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more in different types of universities. And so in the UK, I think a lot of students don't know what it means to go to higher education. They don't know what the experience is going to be about. Uh, so I think they struggle a bit more in that sense. I think in the US, there's more traditions as part mm-hmm. of the student experience that students can grab onto. Um, but I think in the UK, the students are a bit more on feeling like they're adults, mm-hmm. yep. which is a which is a shift in tone in the US. I think sometimes there's a sense that it's kind of an extension of schooling, yeah, um, and they're comfortable being treated that way. Um, and in the UK, sometimes students can feel a bit 
patronized okay. by some of the things institutions might do in terms of let's enhance your sense of belonging, for example. And students kind of say, could you just leave me alone? Yeah. I'm a grown up. <laughs> Yeah. I'll engage how and when I want to. Interesting. Yeah, my, because my husband's American, and so I've got to know a little bit of the, the system over there, and there's very much an affiliation to their university. I mean, our dog is even named after my husband's university. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Well, uh, well, we have to explain it all the time. Why is your dog named Clemson? I mean, um, but but there is that passion, you know, they they... The, the parents have gone to that university and then the children go to the university and they join the sports teams, which is a massive part of the culture. And it seems quite different to a lot of what we experience over here in that respect. Yeah, I mean, you're lucky your children aren't named Clemson. Yeah, that, <laughs> thank you for that. That is very true. I've never actually thought of that. At least it was the dog. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that it shows how US universities are much better about bringing students into their institutional identity, whereas in the UK, most students have a course-based identity. Right. So they'll often describe that when they went to uni, what subject they studied, Mm -hmm. um, and that's their primary way of identifying with their institution, rather than with the institution itself. Okay. Um, Besides a few examples, people who went to Oxford will always conveniently drop that in conversation. Um, But besides that, most students will talk about the course they were on. Okay. Do you think that's changing over here, then? Do you think that's... It will, it will become more American in that way where people will talk about the place. Because when I walk around now, I think just in the three years I've been here, I see more people wearing branded university merchandise, if you want to call it that. Um, so do you think that's, that's shifting in the UK? I think there's an incremental shift. I mean, I've, I've at Imperial, I see a lot more students in the shops. I think a lot of international students bring that mm. culture as well because yeah. they... Similarly, they've watched American films about going to higher education, so they want the kind of branded, logoed um, stuff. Uh, I think it will take a long time because I don't think institutions are set up in quite the same way. I think some small institutions have a stronger identity. I think it's actually harder with bigger research-intensive institutions to give students that sense of where they belong. I think you do get it at places like Loughborough, mm-hmm. um, where there's a tighter sense. You go there to be sporty, so everyone's sporty. <laughs> yeah. They're all wearing their kit all You're the time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think for students who do participate in some of those institution-wide activities, they do have a different sense of belonging to the institution. Um, but that is hard to foster when students largely take courses with the same set of people, and that defines their experience, and that's what they're mm. part of. Mm. So, I mean, obviously, we've just heard you there in the in the keynote, and you were talking about you know, how your research is centered on student engagement, um, in, in particular in relation to their own learning. So why has that become so important for you? Um, one of the things I've always been fascinated by is students' motivation to engage. So why you might get some students who come to every class, sit at the front, ask lots of questions, do lots of reading. And what's the difference with them compared to the students who are in the middle? You might pay attention, occasionally ask a question, probably actively participate in group work. Um, And then the students who are either in the back of the room or not there at all. Uh, And what's the difference into why some students are actively participating if they see something wrong they think of how they could start a society to change it um they they want something different um i've worked with some really powerful student groups over my time in in uk higher education things like the post-crash economic society at manchester where students like took control of the curriculum and said we want to be taught another way of thinking about 
the world and economics, um, or the divestment work that was started at places like Glasgow, and they really got their institution you know, almost a decade ago now mm -hmm. to, to think differently about their relationship with the climate. Um, you know, what motivated those students and how did the institution provide opportunities, or in the case of Manchester, not provide opportunities, yeah, yeah. you know, for students to, to experience, experience their higher education that way. So I think it's these ideas of are there things you can do to actually shift where that bar is in the classroom and move it further back from just the students in the front to kind of push it back. So there's a larger group of students who are actively engaged and change the culture um, of the classroom and of the course by getting students to think they need to be part of things. Yeah, interesting. I Just listening to your talk, I re remember you talking about... Um, what is it that students can do to support their learning? That's actually what student engagement is about. And I just wondered if you wanted to explore a little bit in terms of the mindset of, you know, students do pay for their education now. Um, how can we support students to still understand student engagement in that way rather than as a client, which is something else you talked about? Well, I actually think we see some of that. Um, at a lot of institutions, I know where I was at King's, based on student feedback, they renovated the student union bar into study space. Okay. To active study space. So it was like a space where you could get a coffee, you could chat, there were group spaces. Because actually for a lot of students, they felt they were investing a huge amount of time and effort and money in their higher education experience. And they wanted to focus on that. They mm -hmm. wanted to really get some good outcomes from their education. So in some ways, I think students are doing this themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also constantly reiterating to students that it's their education. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're going to get out what they put in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. the institution is there to teach them and you know educate them, but they will learn based on what they do. Yeah. Um, and the the more effort they put in, the more they will get out of it. And also trying to highlight to students the breadth of opportunities that you uniquely have as a student in terms of internships or opportunities or placements that you just don't get once you enter the competitive world of work. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. I think um, just hearing you unpack some of your research, one of the things that really um, stood out to me was you, you got some students to talk about that kind of higher education experience and they did reflect on the structured learning, the education, but they, they talked about all those other aspects to do with the social learning, the learning about accommodation, how to cook for the first time, about how to manage their money. Particularly, I think, with my work with students um, back at my previous institution, if they were worrying about their money, you know, if, if they hadn't cooked a meal the night before, actually that got in the way of their, their formal learning. So I guess, I guess what the students were saying to you through that research project was actually we need to, we as people who are supporting them in their learning, we need to understand that kind of holistic view of their education. Is the more that universities can be doing in those other areas as well as what we do in the classroom to support student engagement? Well, I think it goes back to that original question of one of the differences in the U.S. and the U.K. And I think in a lot of U.S. universities, they own their accommodation. Right. So that becomes an extension of the student's learning experience. And you can have things like institutions that promote living and learning communities where sometimes even staff members might live there. And you might have themed dinners where you talk about certain topics so that the classroom, although it's not the formal classroom, but it extends into students' yeah living space and all of that becomes part of a more holistic student experience. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of on the extreme. I think on the lighter end is appreciating that students might have a lot of questions about that and not leave, leaving it solely up to 
private student accommodation to meet all of students' needs, but that students might want things like healthy cooking classes. Yeah. Um, you know, students finding it useful to get a kind of lowdown on grocery stores and how to shop. I mean, I had a cousin of mine come and do study abroad in the UK, and she got a whole host of useful things about living in London mm. that I don't think we actually necessarily provide to our students. Mm-hmm but that she got through her US university doing uh, here's how you live in London. Yeah. Um, a couple of your examples there with Glasgow and Manchester um, talked about how powerful the student voice is or how powerful it can be. Do you think that's, is that changing? Do you think that's becoming more prevalent across higher education? I think one of the challenges is that the representation system isn't holding up like it used to and that the voices might be louder Mm. and they might be very forceful, but they're not necessarily representative. And so there's a lot of students who feel their student union doesn't represent them and that that's not a useful mechanism for quote unquote understanding the student voice across the institution. So it's really effective for the students who participate in it. Yeah. Um, But it is not represent, I mean, inherently, it's not representative of the students who don't participate in it. And often when I talk to senior managers and policymakers, they're very worried that when they listen to those loud voices, they are not representing the voice of very many students. Mm. And there's a concern that a single person shouting the loudest um, can be leading to a lot of change in the institution that it might actually be detrimental to other students. Um, who want to experience different things. I think you see some of this in, you know, campaigns to ban meat on campus. A lot of students mm-hmm. go, well, I mean, I don't want to campaign for meat, but I also don't want it gone. <laughs> yeah, you know? sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to join the beef society, but I'd like to get a burger. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't seem, you know, hugely yeah. irrational. Yeah. But it, it depends on if you just listen to a loud group of some students um, or some societies that tend to attract students who have a very strong voice or policy stance on something then actually be quite alienating to a large mm. group of students who are either happy with the status quo or didn't feel they needed to actively defend it. Yeah. So in your talk you talked a little bit about um, student partnership as a I guess that does involve student voice, but maybe it's a more effective way or it could be a more effective way than just listening to those loud voices. Do you want to unpack for us a little bit about what you meant by student partnership? Well, it would be about trying to engage students, not just in, you know, tell us what you want, which sometimes is what student voice can boil down to, but let's be part of this change together. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps bring the reality to students as to why sometimes some of this work is difficult. And so I use the example of bringing students in in a partnership way into the development context, because that showed what it's different than just trying to take the student voice into, for example, you know, teaching new teachers how to teach effectively. But what does it mean like to kind of actively do that in a partnership context where they are part of that experience? Or in terms of analyzing and disseminating responses to student surveys, it is different to just treat that data as the student voice Mm -hmm. and that responding to the survey data is getting the job done versus bringing students actively into the analysis and dissemination of that and what that would look like. Great. So I'm uh, going to reference back to a previous podcast that uh, that we had, and some co- I had, we had some colleagues from XJTLU, which is our sister university in China, mm-hmm. and they were talking about um, how the students across there use a platform called WeChat, and they create their own community, and they have that student-on-student engagement. And your your keynote this morning got me thinking about that, and I was thinking we have that in this country. I mean, people, I'm sure people set up 
uh, WhatsApp groups and and you know and Twitter hashtags and things like that. Where do you think the role is in the in the electoral or whoever is in facilitating that? If they step in, could the whole thing sort of could they burst the bubble? Could it shut down? Well, what tends to happen is if an academic steps in, they'll just create a sister group. without the academic so everyone will be part of the group at the academic and then they'll have their own group so i did an evaluation of a bridging course at oxford about part of their widening participation agenda and the students had i mean it was only like five students but they had a, a group and then they had a group with like the students who were facilitating it but they had their own group for like when the facilitator said like meet at the statue at five and they would all be like what statue where do we meet what do we do what are you wearing and then they would with the facilitator be like yeah see you at five and it, <laughs> <laughs> so it was this really? idea that yeah you can you can help facilitate that but students will create their own groups and those kind of things can i do think yes students create them and they can work very effectively um, i think it can be helpful for universities to encourage students to do things like that or say students in the past have done this or for example at the beginning of the year possibly set up study groups where students might be assigned and say you can choose how you want to communicate you know let students come up with their own way but some ways that then all students are included on the flip side i have seen some really negative consequences of this happening um in for example uh, a faculty of uh, natural science where all the male students got together created their own groups and uh, had really negative language happening in kind of a very lad culture banter atmosphere right. about the handful of student female students, uh, a lot of negative commentate, uh, comments about young female teachers um, that created a really hostile learning environment. And also they benefited from working and learning together in a very specific context that students who weren't part of that lad culture banter yeah, then both like so the female students weren't part of it the male students who didn't want to be part of that which exited it then weren't gaining from that educational experience that was actually you know part of mm. you know it wasn't just banter it was banter and oh does anyone have you know what's going on in assignment four um so it is difficult to kind of not be too engaged but also to leave it completely up to students because sometimes negative cultures can develop. So how are you kind of aware of what's going on in the student body and make students aware of appropriate ways to communicate? And I think we saw the big scandal at Warwick where, you know, similarly it got well out of hand and in that case, you know, was made very public. Um, And so I think there's educational ways those groups can happen, but how are students educated to behave in appropriate ways when that's happening? in an institutional context yeah. or in the context of being at an institution. So just um, reflecting on that a little bit, that's one really nice way that it can work or sometimes it doesn't. And um, for part of our um, pedagogic research, we asked people to tweet in um, in advance, didn't we, in terms of um, what are the barriers to stopping students engage. Um, and I just wondered if you wanted to reflect a little bit in terms of, obviously, as colleagues, we need our students to engage there's the TEF you know there's the NSS we need that student engagement but what is it that we're really looking for in terms of their engagement is it is it joining groups like you've just described is it turning up in the classroom or or are we looking for wider engagement um I mean I think it's 
creating an environment where students can engage how they want to. Okay. So that students get to be the kind of arbiters rather than the institution deciding this is how you're going to engage. But I think it's also about institutions knowing who their students are mm -hmm. and are there different types of profiles of students in different parts of the institution that things should be targeted. So rather than being treated as a complete monolith, that actually you might have students on some courses who might want to engage differently and providing opportunities for them to do that. Um, letting students know they are supported, but definitely giving them freedom. I was um, at an event earlier this week and someone said, you know, they were talking about commuter students, for example, not engaging as much in the university. And someone kind of said, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's fine. Mm -hmm. If some of these students want to live their life at home, stay friends with their friends at home, come in and do their course, I want to provide a really good environment for them to do their course. Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell them to give up their local football team and join the universities because that's what I want for them. They get the autonomy to decide what they want, but it's my job as someone who works at the university to provide the best experience in the level that they want to. You said something um, earlier in, in your keynote about how, it re I, wrote, I wrote it down because you, put, you said, students are excited about talking about their learning even more so than student satisfaction. And I guess it, it is about students being really passionate about their learning that we're looking for, whether they're living at home and engaging with life at home, but, but learning and, and really enjoying that experience when they come to uni or whether they've moved to university and they engage fully here and in a different way. As long as we can switch students on about their learning, that, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, and the satisfaction <clears throat> bit comes in when, for example, if there's no public transport to campus mm -hmm. at the time when their lectures start, then that's a kind of satisfaction type issue where you go, well, we could deal with that, and then that would support their learning. So then you can move the conversation on to, yes, we appreciate the transport issue, we'll work to resolve that, and then you can get on to the kind of learning stuff, which is actually what students do want to talk mm -hmm. about. So I'm just going to uh, change lanes slightly and just talk about the data that's collected. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm going to reference back to your keynote. You talked about um, sort of students owning that data or, or the institution being open enough to be able to allow that to happen. When you when you said something around a student was surprised that eight people might have read their assignment, some, that sort of switched on in my head and I thought, how do we allow the students to know that? Because surely you can't have that personal conversation with every student about every aspect of their data. How do we be more open as an institution around student data? Well, I think trying to kind of create a culture of when you think about asking for student data or what you do with things, being really clear about that full cycle of why are we asking it? What are we going to do with it? If it goes to some committee, what that is, where you're ever going to hear about it again. So it's kind of not just say free pizza, fill out a survey, but you go, we're asking about this for this reason. This is what we're going to do with it, and you can find out more here. You know, so there is a kind of full cycle in trying, yeah. you know, you know, and for example, on the assessment thing, to kind of let students know at the beginning of term, this is the process by which this goes about. Mm. This is how we do blind double marking, if we still do that, and making it transparent to students about this is the process, this is why it takes so long to get your final degree, yeah. you know, kind of. Because yeah. um, 
I mean, I worked in the UK for a couple of years before I really understood what was happening. And then when I did, I was like, this makes no sense. And this is the most like complicated system in the world. Um, and you can imagine, why would any student know that's what's happening? Yeah. Um, and the number of people that might look at something they get. And I saw a colleague, a professor of chemistry, who was marking students' exams and writing like feedback and ticking boxes. And I was like, do the students ever see any of that? He said, no. Wow. This is solely internal so that like I verify it, someone else verifies it. We give the students a grade and all the students see is the grade. So they don't know that anyone's ever looking at mm. this. Um, and why would they? Mm. No, I guess they wouldn't. I think you're right. Um, in my previous position, I was a head of department and I often got that, oh, your colleague has marked my, my work wrong and I'd like the mark changed. And once you sit down with the student and you say, well, actually, they've marked it, they've given feedback. Someone has second marked it and now it's gone to an external examiner who has third marked it. I think once the students understand how that data has been generated, they're like, oh, OK, you know, it's not just a lecturer who doesn't really like me and has given me a bad mark. It has been through a thorough process, but you're right, they don't know about it until we sit down and we explain that to them. Um, and it's important that, that we do do that. So on a practical level, are we talking, um, because there's like 10,000, 20,000 pieces of information a student gets when they start, is that information that's put out there like on a, in an FAQ basis that a student can think, where what happens with all my data? Is it is it that that we do, or is it actually, do we need to, do we need to be upfront and tell them in the beginning? What's the best way around that? I mean, they, students get over bombarded, so it's not yeah. kind of a freshers' week, FYI, this is how assessment works. But when they kind of get their first assessment and they're going to start to get feedback and they hand things in, they've settled in a bit, that can be a time to kind of explain yeah. the, the feedback process and what, what are your expectations of how they will engage with the feedback, um, what, what your kind of responsibilities are. And I think that starts to develop a culture where students go, oh, okay, I, I now kind of understand a bit more about this yeah. process. Right information at the right time. Yeah, my experience is definitely students don't need it until they need it. So you can write it into a handbook and you can say it till you're blue in the face, <laughs> yeah. but until they, yeah. they don't agree with their mark, that's when they need to know how it, the process is yeah. going through. Okay, so lots of your research and lots of what we've talked about is hopefully informing policy. But what do we do when um, that policy doesn't work in practice in terms of supporting the students? How can we, how can we either work with policy that, that doesn't really chime with the student experience or how do we then inform policy to, to change that for the student's benefit? Well, I think we're in a really interesting space now. We have a new regulator, the Office for Students. And how do we get students to understand that if they don't like the conversation that's being had about them and about their higher education experience, that they need to use these channels mm -hmm. to help change that conversation. If they don't want their education to be about satisfaction and salary data, then they need to push back and use their power as students to try and start to shift that conversation. And how do they do that within institutions and help institutions do that across the sector? Great. So uh, just thank you for your time today. It's been great to have these conversations with you. Um, we'd like to finish each podcast with three or four take-home tips that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. Uh, so have you got three or four tips that we could uh, reflect on uh, in, in relation to your research? Yeah, I mean, firstly, talk to your students, get to know them, um, you know, don't treat them just as data points, uh, mm -hmm. but really, really think of them as people and use some of that data to reflect and have students think how much does it relate to them and who they are yeah. uh, and what else might be useful to know. 
So that's one. Another one is get students involved with what you're doing. Um, it makes a lot of stuff that can be boring seem really fun again. Uh, students bring a fresh perspective and it can give a lot of meaning to the work that you're engaged in, particularly around quality assurance and enhancement, really changes the tone of the conversation when students are active agents in that. And thirdly, uh, continue to do great pedagogical research, researching on what works for students, getting to know your students in your context, share that with other people, uh, you know, be voices for change in the sector to kind of help keep UK HE going strong uh, and give students, you know, a voice and a say in what's happening. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, really great to hear from from Camille there. A couple of things that uh, that that really spoke to me was the how she highlighted the differences between US students and UK students. Um, whereas, like a, a US student would um, would talk more about their institution, and a, whereas a UK student will probably talk more about their discipline and then the, the institution. And I think the, the research has shown that we need to foster a sense of belonging for students, particularly around the discipline rather than the institution itself in, in this country. Uh, and that's where we should be putting our emphasis in terms of engagement. Yeah, I think you're right, absolutely. If we're, if we're thinking about engaging students and that sense of belonging and how we foster that is really, really important. Another thing that she was talking about that stood out to me was how students have highlighted the value of wider skills um, that they pick up from their higher education experience alongside the kind of formal learning that takes place. So students have highlighted the importance of learning cooking skills or um, budgeting money, those kind of things. So that kind of holistic understanding of the student experience is really important. And so I think we need to think about how we support students in those areas, because from what Camille was saying, you know, when students are worrying about how to cook their meal or um, how to budget their money, they're never going to engage as much as they can with the formalised learning until um, those skills have been developed as well. So I think that's something for us to think about um, in terms of that kind of holistic support of students um, to ensure that they engage. Yeah, definitely. Um, something Camille mentioned right at the end of the podcast was, when, was the need to speak with students to get to know them and, and, and understand what they need. So you can't just assume that you know what they want or what they need. And that mirrors um, some of the things, I think three times we've heard a similar message now in the tips from different podcast guests. Um, so again, it's something that we need to reflect on and, and probably take forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think more and more that's an untapped resource, isn't it? In terms of talking to our students and, and getting to know them. And something that she highlighted um, in what she was saying was getting students involved in quality assurance that actually when they start to to talk about their experience um, it really changes the conversation having their perspective in terms of those conversations so lots of really good um, thoughts from Camille there and we're really thankful to her for coming to talk to us about some of her research We'd love to hear back from you if you have um, enjoyed the episode or you've got some perspectives in terms of this really important subject to do with engaging students. Please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy or you can get in touch with us directly at eLearnerMatt 
or at Alexandra underscore Owen. We'd love to hear back from you. Also, if you'd like to take your thinking further on this important topic, we've added some further resources to the website. There's a specific reading list there for this podcast. So do have a look at those resources and again, let us know what you think. You can find those resources on the web at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in the in your podcast providers app. So if you've listened and enjoyed this episode, please rate or even better review the show as it really does help us get noticed and therefore more people will find us as a result. Bye for now. Bye.